Good morning, Grace Life. We're going to read from Romans 1, 21 through 28. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in their lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with the passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their errors. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. Let's, uh, let's pause and pray and ask God to bless our time together. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for another opportunity to, to worship you and to turn our attention to your word. And I pray that you would remove, please remove, Lord, any distractions, even ways we've read and understood this passage uh, in the past, Lord, and our minds t- tend to go to, to certain sins, and maybe we miss something that you have for us, maybe a sin that we're not struggling with, but nevertheless is covered in the broader context of, of this chapter and this passage I pray that your, your spirit would use your word that you authored and, and that you alone can make come alive uh, to teach us today, to, to convict us, or to comfort us, Lord, or to bring clarity. And I pray this message would be used by you and that it would be attended by you, Lord. It would be empowered by you. I'm just a messenger. I'm a, I'm a fallen man, just a piece of clay, Lord. I pray that you would fill me with your spirit today and, and that your spirit would come and help us all see and understand the wonderful and beautiful and powerful, compelling things about Christ and, and about ourselves, Lord, um, how we turn from him in this passage. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, keep your Bibles open to that passage. We are still in our study of Romans, and this series is called Engage, A Journey Through Romans, and we've used in our title um, what we really hope to accomplish. We, we, we want this to be an opportunity for you to engage more deeply with God, and then engage more deeply with yourself, and then in turn, engage more deeply with a world in, in desperate need, and engage really with one another. All that's included in all 16 chapters of this, uh, but today we're just going to focus on one passage and I, that was a lot that Bill read, and there's probably no way I'm going to get through all of this today. I actually have a lot to say about this passage in the last little bit that we didn't read yet, 28 through 32. Um, and there's, there's no way, I have too much to say actually in one sermon. And I'm telling you that so that you'll relax if I start to run out of time and just know that we'll pick back up next week. It's going to be at least two weeks, maybe three, um, because I'm really excited about what this has to say to us and for us and how it really... I think God is going to help us through understanding this passage gain greater clarity on not only what has gone on in history, but what's going on today culturally with society, with our nation, with all nations around the globe. Uh, but at the same time, to not so often we lose conviction 
because we think in terms of a nation, like this is what's going on in the nation, and these are the sins of the nation. God wants you to think individually. He wants you to think individually. We, we talk about God saves a nation, and I know that language, but God doesn't save countries. He saves people, <laughs> right? Countries don't go to hell. People go to hell. P- countries don't get redeemed. People do. So I want you to think in, in, in terms of, of individuals and, and first think of in terms of yourself, because what Paul is going to show us here is not just what happens to a nation or to a group. It's what happens to an individual when you reject God, when you reject truth that's so plainly and evidently manifested to you. There are perils and consequences to that. And Paul's going to show us just the downward spiral here. That's what we're going to look at together today in this passage. So uh, we're talking about the gospel. And Paul says, if you back up a little bit, he, he says in this passage, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And you wouldn't say something like that unless there's a temptation that you face to be ashamed of it. Because the gospel's scandalous. It's a scandalous message. I mean, think about this. God became a man and became crucified. One of the most shameful, dehumanizing, and offensive means of of execution that the world had ever... It's so bad, in fact, that later they outlawed it in Rome. Even Romans said, that's too much, man. And God came and became crucified. That's, that's scandalous. That's offensive to say we deserve that and that he had to face that in order for you and I to be redeemed. And not only that, it's, it's ridiculous to people. They mock it. It's foolishness. So Paul says, I'm not ashamed of it, even though I face the temptation to be. But he also says, I'm not ashamed of it because this is the only power that's going to be able to rescue people from this darkness that I'm going to talk about. There's no other power. That's why Paul could walk into a a place like Rome, or write a group of people in a church in a place like Rome and say the things he's about to say. I mean, this is a challenging passage. Verses 26 and 27 that start talking about sexual perversion, homosexuality, that's one of probably the most, to date, controversial things in the Bible. But if you think it's controversial for us today, think of Rome. 14 of the first 15 emperors were homosexuals. And it wasn't this monogamous, you know, long-term commitment it was some of the vilest and most violent, even ending in, in murder. So Paul's writing this. He says, I'm not ashamed to tell you the remedy for this. I'm not ashamed of it. This is the only hope that any person or any group of people have to be delivered. So that's where we're at. The gospel is good news, but good news is not preached in a vacuum. And the good news doesn't come to people who are just crushing it and doing great. Good news comes to people who are being crushed people who are in a crisis, people who are in darkness. That's why Paul wrote this the way that he did, and that's why I think it's so valuable for us as individuals, as a church, as a community, as a state, and as a nation to understand this. This talks about God's wrath. We talked about that a little bit last week. This is the the wrath of abandonment. It's not a past historical wrath. It's not a future wrath end times, eschatological wrath. It's, it's a present wrath. It's the wrath of abandonment. He says three things, basically, and we talked about last week. Paul is, you can, you can view Paul here as a prosecuting attorney for the world. He's taking the world to court for the crime and the sin of rejecting God, of exploiting God, of stealing from God, and not giving God thanks, not honoring God, not giving themselves to God, but turning away from Him. Paul's taking them to court. And last week, we talked about three things that Paul wants the whole world to hear. Number one, God is angry. <laughs> Number two, we are guilty. 
And number three, there is no excuse. So we talked about those three things. And just to summarize really, really quickly, God has made himself so plain through creation, through the immensity of creation, through nature, through the complexity of nature, all the, the laws of thermodynamics and you know, rocket science and protons and neutrons, all the things we can see and observe. He's made himself so evident and by our conscience that when we reject him, the Bible says we're without excuse. And that's why we're, we're guilty and, and there's no excuse. We've turned from a person that has made himself very clear and very evident to us. That's what the Apostle Paul was talking about. So today we're going to talk about the consequences, and that's really, that's really the first part I want to show you here. What happens when you reject truth? What happens when you actually reject God? That's what the word, the word suppress, it means to repress. It means to hold down. Those two words that I told you about, compound word in Greek. It means to have or hold and to push down. What happens when you do that? You know there's the beach ball analogy. You hold down the beach ball. You ever try to do that? I don't care how strong you are. Go to the ocean, get one of those, you know, mega beach balls and get you and all your friends and try to hold it down and see what happens. Something's going to give. Something's going to pop up. And that's what the Apostle Paul talks about next in this passage. Check this out. This is Romans 121. Bill read it earlier, but I want to focus on one, one part of this. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile or futile, whatever you're whatever method you, pronunciation you prefer there, they became futile in their thinking. And by the way, that means empty. Empty and fruitless and vain. Their minds were emptied. They rejected God. They didn't give him thanks. They said no. Psalm 14, it actually doesn't say the fool uh, hath said in his heart, there is no God. It actually says in Hebrew, the fool has said no, God, So what happens? They became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now, these are what we would call passive verbs, just to get technical for a minute. This is something that actually happens to you. As you're doing it to yourself, it's happening to you. There's a force that that you have launched that you can't control anymore. You've turned down a path, and you forfeited control. Now you're, you're like a victim. You're the center Don't misunderstand me. You're the sinner, you're the criminal, but you're also the victim of your own sin now. God says, that's what you wanted? Okay, baby, you got it. I'm giving you over. I'm handing you over. And the first thing that happens is that the lights go out. God turns out the lights. It's really interesting. I don't know if you grew up in the 80s and 90s the way I did, but I watched this a lot. Maybe I should, I don't know. I have to ask my mom and dad. I was a teenager and... uh, had this, I played this on YouTube for my wife the other day. The scariest, most eerie voice you could ever imagine would open up this, this, uh, this show every week. And at the very end, it would say these words. It would say these words. The dark side, I'm not going to mimic the voice. The dark side is always there waiting for us to enter. Waiting to enter us. Until next time, try to enjoy the daylight. <laughs> That's what it would say every week, and that always, I remember that to this day. The darkness is always there waiting for you to enter it, but what he said next is what I remember, waiting to enter us. What God is saying through Paul in this passage is when you reject God and you turn away and you sin against his revealed will and revealed knowledge, and God turns you over, the first thing that happens is that the lights go out. The darkness actually enters you. 
You have invited this uncontrollable force into your mind, into your will, and into your heart that's going to guide you and govern you until God does otherwise. So what Paul's going to show us here is, is what that entails. Waiting on the other side of suppressing and rejecting God's truth is a darkness that will fill your heart. You've crossed a line. It will happen. Individually and, and collectively and corporately, it will happen. It's like a contagion. It just spreads. So here's the outline today. This is what we're going to look at. Three, three things that we see in this passage, okay, about rejecting God. And I'm calling this a walk in the dark. Three things. Number one, we reap what we sow. You didn't need the Bible to really tell you that, did you? You already know that. You've already experienced that. But Paul does say that here in lots of different ways. Secondly, we replace what we reject. I'll explain what I mean by that. You're a worshiper. You don't turn worship on and off. You just exchange the object of worship. And when you trade out God, <laughs> whatever's next is, is not an improvement. And third, we become what we worship. You know, you are what you eat. You've heard that. You become what you worship in the Bible. And don't, don't read too much. You mean we become a God? Well, the Bible says we're being conformed to the image of Christ as a Christian, right? So if you're not worshiping God, you're becoming an image of something else. And guys, it's not pretty at all. It's destructive, it's dangerous, it's dark, it's damaging, and it's deadly. And that's what Paul talks about here. So point number one, we reap what we sow, playing with fire. This is the perils of suppressing the truth. I told you last week I, that I would tell you why God was angry, and I did. We've rejected his truth. And then this week, I told you I was going to show you how his wrath is being revealed. Because that's what verse 18 says. It says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. And that verb tense is in the present. It says, the wrath of God is being revealed right now. Right now. This is not talking about a future wrath, like, oh, you mean when Jesus comes back, he's going to bring wrath. Yes, he is. But that's not the kind of wrath that this passage is talking about. It's talking about a current wrath going on right now inside of us and around us. I think I showed you a picture last week. Just imagine this tranquil, serene beach, and you would think, when, when we think of wrath, this is what we think about. It's coming. Look out. Nobody has any idea. But the kind of wrath, that's a giant tsunami wave, by the way. Have no idea if that's real or not, all right? It looks a little filtered, but hey, we'll move on. <laughs> That's what we think of. God's wrath is coming, this huge wave. Oh, watch out. But what Paul's talking about here is this. No, the wave came. The tsunami came. I don't know if you've ever seen footage of a tsunami. It's the most creepy thing you've ever seen in your life. If you're in the path of a tsunami, um, you're in serious trouble. So this is the wreckage. Paul is walking us through the wreckage, and, and point, he's giving us a tour. He's like, you want to see wrath? You want to see what God's... Current wrath looks like, take a tour with me. Let's walk through darkness. I'm going to show you around. I'm going to give you a guided tour of what it looks like when God abandons you. So that's what the Apostle Paul's talking about here. They suppressed the truth. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. And they did not see fit to acknowledge God in verse 28. And I know I could say a lot more about this, but one of, the reasons, one of the reasons that the people in this passage turn away from God is because of exactly what the evidence and the proof that they, were, that they were witnessing told them about him. He's not an impersonal force. You know, even pop psychology uses a term uh, like you're living in denial. 
You're suppressing memories. You, do you know the kind of memories that people suppress? What kind? Dramatic. Tra- traumatic. <laughs> Say it that way. Painful. Memories that threaten them. I remember when this happened, oh, I can't even think about it. I got to push that down into this deep, dark place in my psyche, even though we know it's going to pop back up if you don't deal with it. If you just think of God as this impersonal force that's just vaguely familiar, he's very distant, and he, and he lets you do whatever you want. He's kind of the grandfather deity, right? We don't feel threatened by that. There's no trauma. We don't suppress that. But when we see the kind of God, the biblical God, the historical God, that Paul is talking about, it says all of his, all of his invisible attributes have been clearly seen, his, his eternal Godhead and his power and his sovereignty, and therefore we feel threatened by that and we push it down and say, no thanks, that threatens me. That takes the crown off of my head and makes me no longer master of my own fate, captain of my own soul. I don't like that. I don't want that. I want my crown, my throne, my scepter. We feel threatened by a God who's personal, and who has a say-so on how we live our life, how we spend our money, how we view relationships and sex. That God's traumatizing, so people push him down and suppress him and think, I took care of that. And God says, you may have taken care of that, but you didn't take care of me. I'm still here. And there's consequences for what you did. So I know there's a lot of gods that don't threaten you, but when you encounter the glorious, powerful, biblical God to whom we owe everything, including our allegiance and our worship, that's when we suppress. Nancy Percy wrote a book. She was a former agnostic, and she studied under Francis Schaeffer uh, at Labrie Fellowship and gave her life to Christ, and she's an incredible, incredible writer. And she said this in her book, Finding Truth, Five Principles for Unmasking Atheism, Secularism, and Other God Substitutes. She said, suppose what you thought was a non-personal spiritual force which could safely be treated as an inanimate object, turned out to be instead a transcendent person with a legitimate moral claim on your life. What do people do when they hear the footstep of the real God? They suppress. They either fall down on their knees and repent and believe and have freedom and abundant life and joy, or they suppress the truth and they encounter what this passage talks about, what Paul talks about in this passage so the active word in, in the first part of this passage in, in Romans 1 was suppress or hold down. But now Paul is going to use another word. Now that you've suppressed the truth, now that the lights have been turned out, here's the truth that Paul is going to use next, and it is the word exchange. Exchange. If you study this passage, it's really interesting. You find the word exchange three times, and it means exactly what it says, to change, to substitute, to trade, to trade out. What happens when you suppress the truth and your mind, your mind becomes futile and empty and vain and your, your heart becomes darkened? What's the first thing that you do? We're talking about spiraling here. You've, you've set in motion a set of events that you can no longer control. What's the first thing that goes? You exchange your worship. This is called idolatry. You, you exchange what you worship. You trade gods. You're like, I don't like that God, but I know I'm inescapably part of being human is that I worship. We all, we're worshipers, ladies and gentlemen. It's inescapable. It's undeniable. Everyone in this room and watching from home has one thing in common. You give yourself to something. Bob Dylan said, we got to serve somebody, and we do. And if it's not God, the thing that we serve, we serve will eat us alive. 
You know David Foster Wallace? He was an atheist who was, was famous, very, very smart, wrote novels. He gave a famous commit, commencement speech. In fact, I think I wrote this down. I want, to, I want to read to you what he said. He gave a famous, famous commitment speech in 2005. Later, he, he took his life. Um, but he said this. He said, in the day-to-day, now this is an atheist. He says, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And then this atheist says something really interesting. He says, and pretty much anything else you worship besides something spiritual or God will eat you alive. Worship beauty, you'll feel ugly. Worship power, you'll eventually feel weak. Worship intelligence and you'll feel stupid. Worship money and things and you'll feel empty. David Foster Wallace, 2005. Interesting, isn't it? Here's an atheist saying, yeah, we're worshipers. Not denying that. I'm denying the object of your worship, but I'm telling you that anything else you worship will tear you to pieces and eat you alive. And he's right. I mean, the Bible said that long before he ever did. In fact, the whole Bible is a history and a chronicle, a catalog of what happens when we commit idolatry. And idolatry is simply something, ladies and gentlemen, that gives you meaning and gives your life purpose. It's something that that answers this question. If I only had this, man, then I'd be living. Then I'd have hope. Then I'd have a purpose. Then I'd be alive. What is that thing? Fill in that blank. If I only had this, it's what you dream about. It's what you think about when you're at a stoplight and you're not texting somebody. And you don't have to think about anything. It's what you think about. Oh, come on. Let me get in your kitchen today. Everybody in here is a worshiper. I'm not going to tell you what I worship. You think about what you worship. <laughs> get that stimulus check. I can't, I can't wait. And then life's going to, everything's going to work out. Then I'll pay off my debt and I'll, I'll get this thing I wanted. And what is it for you? Is it money, sex, beauty, power? Is it fame? Is it if I just get 200 likes? If I get three subscribers, eight followers, if I get the promotion, what is it? It's something. Anything other than God, we give our allegiance and loyalty to, the Bible calls idolatry, and it will eat your lunch. This is one of the most powerful and clearest passages on the perils of idolatry in the Bible anywhere. It's just critical and crucial. Romans chapter 1. There's three exchanges You've heard of day trading, haven't you? I don't know anything about that, but I was thinking, you know, I'm always scrambling to help you understand things. This is night trading, trading in the dark. You don't really know what you're getting. I don't like this. <laughs> What's behind door number three? I don't know. Give it to me. I'd, have, I'd rather have anything than this, than this God. Get away from me. This is trading in the night, in the dark. Some deals are going down, and they're not good. So Paul uses this word three times. Oh, I never read the passage, did I? I'm sorry. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And what they do first, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. So the first thing they do is they trade glory for corruption, glory and immortality to corruption and mortality. That's the first thing they trade, first exchange. The second thing they exchange is truth for a lie. And the third thing they trade or change is life-giving natural relationships for destructive, unnatural, perverted relationships. 
There's exchange. And listen, if you haven't picked up on it yet, it's, I don't like to use the word progressive because this is not progress. <laughs> um, it's, it's, a down, it's cyclical, circular. Uh, sorry, guys, I'm from, I'm from Arkansas. I struggle sometimes, okay? This is a downward, it's downward. It's down, one follows the other. It's degressive, it's repressive, I regressive. Yeah, that's it, thank you. It's regressive, it's not progressive. I think C.S. Lewis wrote a book you know, you have Pilgrim's Progress. I think C.S. Lewis wrote a book called Pilgrim's Regress, which was like the opposite of John Bunyan's work. This would be that. This is the regress of a human being who rejects God and, and exchanges God. You go down. You go nowhere but down. You may go over here and over here and seem to make some improvements, but you're going down, and you, and you can't stop yourself. That's a terrible thing. Have you ever fallen? I mean, really not fallen down a, a step or something, but like fallen from a height. It's a terrible feeling. I fell 28 feet once, and I hit concrete. And I can tell you, that's the worst feeling that I've ever had in my life, because I was absolutely and utterly out of control to do anything to stop myself. And it happened so fast, and I was so dazed and confused when I hit. That's, that's the picture here. You're out of control, man. You've let go of the only stabilizing dynamic in your life that was a gift to you from God. You've rejected it and turned loose of it and basically said to God, I don't want this anymore. Please go away. Please leave me alone. And this is what I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen. This wrath of God that's being revealed is God saying, fine, then have it. Have your way. C.S. Lewis said, C.S. Lewis said there's only two groups of people. There's only two groups of people in the end that we're going to see. The group that says to God, thy will be done, and the group that God turns and says to, thy will be done. Have it your way then. Oscar Wilde, I don't know if you know who that is. He was a, in the previous century, he was a playwright, an intellectual, openly gay, hated religion, and he said when the gods seek to destroy us and punish us, they answer our prayers. Oscar Wilde said that. It's interesting, isn't it? It's almost as if, and I say it reverently, not irreverently, what God is doing in this passage is answering the prayers of the people who hate him, saying, I will give you exactly what you want, but don't complain. This is what you ask for. Have you ever done that as a parent? And maybe that's a poor, we love our children, and they keep on, keep on, and keep on. Fine, then do it, but I'm warning you. <laughs> I'm warning you. There's going to be consequences to this. Don't come crying to me. You ever said that? <laughs> but don't they come crying to you? <laughs> we replace what we reject. This exchange reveals a lot about the power of sin. It takes us deeper and further and darker. In fact, notice the regress here. They, they exchange the glory. They exchange, exchange the glory uh, of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You know, this is identical. I know this is Greek and the Old Testament is Hebrew, but the Old Testament was translated into Greek in a book called the Septuagint. And you compare the Septuagint creation account and Romans 1 and it's almost identical. God created man. We're the crown jewel of his creation. We are made in his image, glorious, beautiful. We show the world this is what God is like. He's reasonable. He's beautiful. He's truthful. He's just. He's honest. And then there's the birds, and then there's the cattle and the things that roam over the earth, and then there's the creeping things, the mice, the rodents, the fleas, the insects. 
Do you see what Paul's saying here? We traded. We're like, I don't want the glory of God, but I worship myself and, and birds and, and cattle and, and, and bugs. That's where idolatry ultimately leads you. Paul's making a very powerful point here and a really sad point because we would chuckle, but look around. Look around. When you reject the creator, you deify something in creation, and that becomes the new operative principle in your life and the controlling map. The G, that's, that's your GPS. <laughs> it's interesting. We'll get to this next week probably. Down in verse 28, it says, he gave them over to a debased mind. That word, we tend to think of morality, but debased, it just simply means broken. doesn't work. It, may, it actually means counterfeit. Have you ever had your GPS? Man, we so rely on them today. And you get a little bit lost, and it says recalibrating, recalibrating. You know what that means? It's talking to the satellite. Just stand by. It, it'll get you there. Do you know what happens when God gives you over, and, you, and you're debased? You know what he says? You're like, come on, God, I need. He goes, no, no, there's no satellite. You're the, you're the satellite. Have fun. See where, the, see where this rejection takes you. Go ahead. I can tell you where you're going down. You're going down. And I don't say this to mock or to be, I'm, I'm not up here with clenched fists yelling, Man, my heart wants to just warn our congregation and our culture. There's consequences to rejecting the truth. This is the peril of suppressing the truth. I love, I'm a carpenter sometimes, and I love to build things. And I get forgetful. My wife will tell you, if I'm building something, honey, what am I asking over? Where's my tape measure? Where do I leave my tape? Where's it at? And I, <laughs> you know, your pastor has a strike of laziness sometimes. And there's times, I'm just going to be honest, I couldn't find my tape measure. I didn't want to go get it. And I've tried to... Have you ever done that? Like, you ever done that? That never works. It never works. Measure twice, cut once, right? But isn't that what we do when we're given, God delivers us over? He says, hey, have your own tape measure. Yeah, it, it mean, this means whatever you want it to be. You redefine the inch or the meter or whatever you want. Go ahead, get, have your own satellite. Recalibrating, recal go wherever you want. That's what this passage is, is essentially saying. When you exchange, the first thing after a darkened heart, where, where a darkened heart will go, is down. The lights go out, and you, you deify something in creation. Again, Lewis, he wrote this in Mere Christianity. Nearly all that we call human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God with which will make him happy. And it never works. If you, whatever, and I'll say this too, I've said this before, whatever you deify in the place of God, not only is it not going to fulfill you ultimately, you're going to break it. You're going to break, you worship your kids? I've got six kids, I think about this every day, I love them so much, but they're not God, and they're not my Savior, and they're not my Redeemer, and I'm not, if I try to vicariously live my shortfallings in life through my kid, come on son, hit that home run, get that trophy, whatever, I'm going to break my kids. There's lots of broken kids today. And you know why? Because they were poor saviors. They were poor substitutes for God. Or your career. You deify your career, you know what you're going to do? The worst thing for somebody who worships their career is a promotion. Just like somebody that gambles, don't give them money. <laughs> it's the worst thing in the world. Here you go. That's what this wrath is. It's like, I want this so bad. And God goes, here you go then. You wanted it. Take it. That's what he says. That's point two. 
Point number three, and I'm, I'm trying to hurry here, okay? But not too fast, because we got next week. There's always next week. <laughs> Point three, we become, we become what we worship. I know there's more there in the last point we can talk about. You exchange first the glory of God for corruption, and then you exchange the truth for a lie. And I know theologians have beat themselves over the, the head trying to figure out what's this lie, what's the lie. It's not, it's not just the lie, it's, it's a lie. You just believe a lie. I mean, you've rejected God. That's, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. When you reject him and you reject your, him as your creator, Anything else you embrace, believing it will make you happy is a lie. It won't work. But you build your life on that. And there's consequences to that. So the three exchanges there. And then this is the last point. Um, We become what we worship. And I told you, there's three exchanges. They exchange this. They exchange that. But there's also three other words here. And this this is kind of the terror in this passage. God gave them over. And the word, the word in Greek is paradidomi. It means to hand somebody over to their enemies. Can you think of anything worse than that? I can't, I can't imagine anything worse than that. Here's my enemy over here. And rather than protecting me, which God had been doing, and giving you all the things that they could never give you that will fulfill you and give you life and joy and to help you thrive and make you complete, will complete you and fill you, you say, you don't want that? Well, here, I'm just going to give you over. And this is not an... The verb is passive in the sense that this happens to us and God's behind it. But I don't want you to, to think wrongly of God in this passage, that God somehow is cruelly pushing you towards something that he knows is going to destroy you. Do you know, the, the word picture here is that there's this powerful current, and, and maybe, maybe you're in a little canoe or something, Okay. And there's this powerful current, and there's a waterfall over here. And God's been holding you this whole time, knowing what's going to happen if he lets go. And you've said, will you stop? I want to go. I want to go that way, God, that way. Not th- let go of me. Let go already. And God says, fine. And he lets go. That's what paradidomy means. Even knowing that on the other side of that letting go is an enemy waiting to consume you. In that sense, you could almost say, and theologians have, God's a gentleman. He will give you what you want. And that's what this is. God gives you over. What's he give you over to? Verse 24. And I'm, I, I do apologize for some of the technical, technical things in this message. I don't really like going too much detail into Greek and Hebrew, but I thought it was really, it was really important to me, at least, how this passage is laid out. Um, in verse 24, the Apostle Paul says this. Can you, can you see this up here? Therefore... And every time it says God gave them over, it's therefore. Because they traded this, God let go even further. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts. So what does God give them over to? He gives them over to lust. And, and that's like a compound word in Greek. And, and it's usually translated lust or sinful desires. Nearly every time it appears in the New Testament. And that's a good translation. Evil desires, I think, is how the NIV translates it. And lust is how the ESV translates it. But what it really means is, it, the, the compound, it's, it's epithumeo. Epi means over, and thumeo is desire. God gives them over, God gives them up to their over-desires. What's that mean? Powerful desires. 
controlling desires, consuming desires. And usually, for humans, those are sinful, aren't they? And they're lustful. I mean, sexual, sexual urges are the most powerful, especially when they're aberrant. And they consume and control and destroy. So that's the first thing that God gives us over to, these overpowering urges. Now, remember, I told you this is a, this is a regressive thing. And you, you, you abandon your creator, and you become like what you worship. If you deify something in creation, like an animal or an insect uh, or a career <laughs> or something else, you become like that. You become almost, how can I say it, animalistic. Your urges are what control, that's your GPS. If it feels good, do it, right? This feels right to me. How, how often do you hear this today? Just follow your heart. Do you know what that, when I hear that, you know what I think of? That's Romans 1. That's your GPS? Your heart is your GPS? <laughs> I mean, think, you're in a marriage, you love your wife, and then, then you see somebody attractive, and you have this, this urge. I mean, well, just follow it then. That's, that's, what, that's what giving you over would mean. Well, just go then, just do whatever you feel is right, because you're God. I mean, basically, you're crowning yourself. If it feels good, do it. Go do it. That's what he's saying in verse 24. Timothy Keller wrote a book called Counterfeit Gods. He said this, This is the wrath of God to give us what we want too much, to give us over to the pursuit of the things we have put in the place of Him. The worst thing God can do to human beings in the present is to let them reach their idolatrous goals. And it's also the fairest thing his judgment is to give us over to the destructive power of idolatry and of evil. When we sin, it sets up stresses and strains in the fabric of the order that God created. Instead of us finding blessing, our sin causes breakdowns spiritually, psychologically, socially, and physically. What's he saying? He's saying we become like the things we worship. The Old Testament says this all over the place. Jeremiah, the whole book of Jeremiah and Isaiah is about idolatry. Jeremiah 2 says this, they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless. You say, oh, that's harsh. No, that's true. That's biblical. That's not, that's not God making fun of us. It's God saying, do you not see what happens when you reject me and abandon me and exchange me? I'm going to give you over and you're going you're to become what you worship. Here it is in, in Psalm 115. Let me pull that up. Check this out. Now, please don't think of just a stone. We think of totem pose when you think of idolatry. But here's what it says. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. What's that mean? That means you become unhuman. You know what idolatry and rejecting God and being given over to your, to your sinful urges, your, your, your overpowering lust, you know what that will do? It will harden you and deaden you. It's almost like you go blind. You're like the eye. You, you can't see anymore. Have you, have you ever seen a before and after picture? I'm not trying to be cruel. Have you ever seen a before and after picture of somebody on meth? It's terrible. I, I was just almost weeping. And I said, I'm not going to show those pictures. I would not do that to somebody. Because you probably have people in here that have been given over to that, that kind of controlling, destructive substance abuse. Have you ever seen a celebrity 
that thought Botox would help their appearance. And then it was a little more and a little more and a little more. And you look at them, you're like, oh, oh my word, you're hideous. Now, I'm not trying to be, I'm not trying to be cute, but it's like how in the world can those people look at themselves in the mirror and think that's an improvement? How can they do that? Have you ever wondered that? I mean, really, it's insane. Now, idolatry is insane. That's what it is. It's spiritual insanity that you're inviting. That's the wrath of God. It's not this huge wave of destruction that's going to come eschatologically in the future. It is that eventually, but it's here in the present. It's the tsunami wreckage. I can't help but think, sorry, Aaron, you're going to love this. I can't help but think of this, guys, because I love Lord of the Rings. I can't help but think of Gollum and the ring of power and what that did to him. If you haven't read the books, maybe you've seen the movie. If you haven't done either, just, just pardon me for a minute here, okay? I just want to show you a picture. So that was Schmeagel. He was once a hobbit-like creature who loved growing things, and he was happy. And then he found a ring. Actually, his friend Deagle found a ring. And he saw it, and he wanted it. He wanted it so bad that he choked his friend to death and took it. And that ring was deceitful. It tricked him. It deceived him. And it took him way, way, way deep down under the misty mountains. And the author tells us it consumed him and it poisoned his mind for hundreds of years. So what I thought I would show you, the movie, Peter Jackson does a great job. He shows, he shows the, uh, the destruction of Smeagol, this happy hobbit-like creature to, you know, my precious. Don't we all have a precious? Isn't that what idolatry is? Look at that. That's what, that's what happened. That's what happened to him. You think, oh my God, what happened to him? The same thing, and that's why I love Lord of the Rings. It's so, I mean, he had to have had the Bible in mind when he wrote this thing, didn't he? That's what sin does to you. That's what idolatry, de, it dehumanizes you. It turns you into a monster. And I'm sorry, ladies and gentlemen, but you're the last person that gets the memo when that happens. Money can do that to you. Something good, like money that God gave us. He gave the power to, to get wealth, but it can become a God. It, it's a great servant. It's a poor master or beauty, or sex, like we see in this passage. That's what happens. You become like the thing you worship, hardened, stony. Isaiah 44, it's a similar passage to, to the one that I just read here. I'll change that for you. <laughs> it's a similar passage to the one I read earlier from, from Jeremiah. But he's talking about a person that makes an idol, like, how dumb do they have to be? You, make, you made that thing, and you're bound down and worshiping it. And then he says this in the last 44, 18, and 20. He says, a deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? He can't admit it. He, he can't say, this is a lie, and I'm worshiping this. He's unable. He's past the point of reality. When you abandon ultimate reality, a lie, you know, the, the broken GPS is what guides you. Embracing an idol is like welcoming a baby tiger into your life. It's so cute. <laughs> Have you ever seen those? You know, it's, apparently it's really easy to buy a tiger. Really easy. And they look so, so cute. And you can control them and pick them up and make a little cage. But what you're doing is you're harboring this, this bloodthirsty predator. I'm, I'm sorry. If you have a tiger, don't, don't it's probably illegal. <laughs> don't be mad at me, okay? But do, don't we keep hearing about people that my wife, my, my wife and I watched some crazy documentaries 
You know, somebody had this exotic poisonous viper reptile brown snake from Australia, which is apparently the, the most poisonous snake in the world. Somebody had it and it escaped. And you know where, where they found it? In a little red wagon that a little boy was pulling around the neighborhood. I can't, can't, Sarah, God's my witness. We watched that and we were like, ah, I'm like, I can't watch it anymore. This little kid had a brown, <laughs> the most venomous viper in the world. It like melts your insides if it bites you and there's, there's no remedy for it. There's no anti-venom, I don't think. Where was I going with this? <laughs> anyway, idolatry is dumb and it's dangerous, okay? <laughs> it's like you're the tiger. Yeah, the tiger. Sorry. This, this, this bloodthirsty predator you're harboring, don't be surprised one day when its jaws are around your throat. Because it's going to figure out one day you're not the master. I am. That's what an idol does. They deceive you and they trick you. Idolatry leads to insanity. Verses 26 and 27, we're, we're going we're gonna to talk about verses 26 and 27, which is sexual perversion, and it deals with homosexuality and a whole host of other, I think, accompanying sins that are related, relatives, you could say. This whole passage is not just about homosexuality, by the way. Verse 24 is just normal. When I say normal... I'll explain what, more what I mean next week, but it's about normal sexual perversion, even heterosexual perversion. The whole thing, I think Paul is talking about sexual sin because that's some of the most powerful urges and over-controlling desires that, that we experience as humans and that you see the wreckage from all over the place, all the scandals, all the time. And we're going to talk about that. But the Apostle Paul uses a word in verse 26 and 27. It, it literally means that, that men and women burned for one another. They burn for one another. That's, that's one of the most powerful words in Greek for this desire. It's like, I want this so badly because I've rejected. I've rejected the created order that was the fabric of the universe. I've rejected that, and God's given me over, so now I can't control it, so I'm going to go for it. I have a friend. I have a friend who's a Christian, and he started out when he was younger with, in pornography, Terrible sin that, that went unchecked. And, it, and he, to, he tells me it took him further and further and further. And one day he arranged a meeting with somebody that he had no business arranging a meeting with for nefarious, sexual, perverted purposes. And he was driving to this meeting, what he thought was a meeting with somebody underage. They were supposed to meet at this meeting place. And he said, I got in my car and I said, I shouldn't be doing this. I shouldn't be doing this. I should stop right now. He said, but I didn't. He said, it was almost like I couldn't. He said, I got on the exit to the interstate, and I said, I should, I should turn around. I, I should stop. I should pull over and pray. But he didn't. He got on the interstate, and then he went, and then he got on, on the off-ramp, the exit. He said, why am I doing this? This is crazy. This is stupid. He said, it's almost like, Tommy, it was, I couldn't stop myself. And then he showed up, and he didn't meet an underage girl. He met a sting team. He got, it was, what, do you, what do you call that, chief? A, a raid, a sting? And then the next morning, there's his picture in the paper. And his life for a little while, he said, was over, was done. But God granted him repentance and faith. And now he's a happily married young man, and he's helping leading worship at a church somewhere. So I see hope. I see hope in this. But man, this is not something that you want to tamper with and play with. It's terrible. Well, I'm going to close with this, and I really am going to close with this, okay? <laughs> this word, paradidomy, it means to give over to your enemies, do you know there's another place where this word is used in the Bible? It's used of Jesus. It's used in this very same book, Romans, in chapter 8. It says something like this. 
how will not God not freely give them all things who also gave over his son, Jesus? Do you know that God, the Father, he paradidomy, he gave over Jesus to his enemies. He abandoned Jesus. We talk about the wrath of abandonment. God abandoned Jesus on the cross. He abandoned Jesus to his wrath and poured it out. And we talk about turning the lights off in darkness. This is, what I'm talking about is ultimate darkness. Even literal physical darkness. The Bible says it was noon in the Middle East. And all of a sudden, the sun went dark. And it wasn't an eclipse because it was Passover. And there's never an eclipse during a Passover anyway, scientifically. Just in case you're wondering, yeah, that was a natural phenomenon. No, it wasn't. It was supernatural. Supernatural darkness. Like it was almost like God said, this is too, this is too terrible for, for people, for human beings to even watch what I'm about to do to my son, which is what I should do to sinners. And I will do to sinners if they continue, if they continue in this path and reject me and reject the gospel and reject Christ. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Jesus rejected and handed over his son to his wrath and his darkness so that you and I don't have to experience this ultimately. We can turn from it. We can repent. We can ask God, deliver me, please. Rescue me. Stop the fall. Stop me from falling. Help me. I want your GPS back. <laughs> Rescue me, God. And he will. He will. I've heard people preach this passage and they've said, this means that we're all, that, are, that God's turned us over and now there's no hope. I don't, I don't believe that. And again, because they say there's no hope, the nation's been abandoned. Well, again, my hope is not that God will save America, but that God will save the people in America, right? And I'm going to read you a story next week, not today, because we're closing, right? About a lesbian that God saved. And you know the passage that he used to do it? Bam, right here. She read Romans 1 and she laughed. She's so stupid. And she, she came back to it. She said, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. You got to come back next week to hear the rest of this. It's not hopeless, friends. God's mercy has limits. You're hearing this today. If you're struggling with something in this passage, if you're struggling maybe with, with same-sex desires or homosexual urges, or maybe you're secretly living that lifestyle, or one of the other things, any form of idolatry, what have you idolized? What have you exchanged God for? And you're like, I feel it, pastor. I'm on this downward spiral. I feel like I, there's darkness within me, and I can't stop it. That's right, you can't. That's a, good place to, that's a good place to start with redemption is you can't stop it. You have arrested them today. You've arrested their attention. You've arrested their, their fall. And they would turn, turn their face to look at you and say Jesus was handed over to his enemies so that I wouldn't have to experience your ultimate wrath. May they look to you for help and hope. May they repent. May they believe the gospel and bow the knee to Jesus as Lord and Savior. We thank you and pray for this and hope for this. In Jesus' name, amen.